Hi, I'm Marty Grizzani, and this is The Marty Grizzani Show. As a full-time real estate investor and business owner, I have a real fascination of finding the key principles for business success and personal development. This show is a reflection of my personal mission to find out what truly makes somebody successful in business and in life. We will find tools and tactics that they've used to reach those levels. If you're the type of person is not satisfied with average and you have a hunger for learning that will never cease, this show is for you. Welcome to the show. As I've been, you know, looking you up and talking, you know, researching and hearing your stories, and I was very glad to meet you again at the event. You know, and, and, and getting to really hear a bit of it on Jeremiah's show, which hopefully will come out soon because there is some unbelievable nuggets for people to hear uh, from yeah, you and Dimitri I, and Jeremiah. We took a bunch of sound bites from it and we're kind of popping them into social media platforms. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, because that's going to be content unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that was really some, you know, really truly MBA level discussion was going on. You know, and it, it, it feels, it's kind of weird, like being in this position and, uh, that I'm in now where I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning from that residential to the commercial. And I want to talk to you about R2C as well, because I, I'm, I'm a little giddy over that brand that you actually came up with. And I'm going to take full advantage of that. Yeah. Uh, but just the being around people and uh, being the, the kind of like the, the, not the dumb person in the room, but just somebody that's just the amateur in the room. I think a lot of people are scared of being that type of person. I and I just, again, I, I thank God that I found personal development and I found what that can do for you. And I found that, you know, proximity is power. I, I, do you think the same kind of thing? Like you're still looking at people who you want to emulate and it's, it doesn't stop. Is that kind of really what it comes down to? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, um, I, 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 I was, th- I was thinking of something as you were talking in regards to that. Um, you know, if you're, we're the overachievers in these rooms, you know, we're all you, me, we're all the overachievers. And, and part of being an overachiever is recognizing what you're not and having, uh, and, and being confident enough to ask for help, to look for mentorship and to see what everybody else is doing. Um, the guys who are know-it-alls, usually hit a plateau and maybe the know-it-alls are successful, but they hit the plateau. They don't get any further because they don't surround themselves around people better than them. So when, you know, being in the mastermind group with, uh, with Scott's group, uh, um, uh, you know, tr- working with getting into other organizations where I'm the bottom guy on the totem pole, um, you know, financially and just on, on an education standpoint that has continued to push, uh, you know, push my business, push, uh, you know, push our growth. If we just stayed with people that are just simply our peers and nothing more, you know, you tend that you're going to hit that plateau. So I, it, it's that. And, and now I'm at a point where, yes, I do other organizations besides I'm part of other mastermind groups besides, uh, you know, where we, you and I met, but big part of why I'm still there is it's, it's more of uh, giving back now. Mm. Um, it is so it is equally important to me to bring some people with me as it is for me to continue to grow. So a lot of the other uh, groups that I belong to, I'm the small guy. I'm the little guy learning from guys that are so much more seasoned than me. But on the flip side, I, won't, I, I can't leave the group that you and I met from because 
I feel like there is a lot of people relying on the advice and, and the information that I'm giving on a quarterly basis with my war stories to help them from making some certain mistakes that I've made or, or even continue to make and say, hey, don't do that. Because um, I just went through it six months ago. You know, I can sustain certain mistakes or certain, um, uh, you know, if I'm looking at something with rose colored glasses occasionally, I can sustain because of the level that our company is. But a lot of the guys in our group and that group, they can't risk. They can't make that, uh, you know, that, that bold move like we can. So it's important that I'm there to like at least share that with them. I can't see leaving that. That's unbelievable because that that's, it means so much. I, I'm glad that it, 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 it fills your cup too by doing that. Um, but it's just such good, good to hear because that's reason why those are successful. In my opinion, I mean, I, you go those, go to those things for the group. I mean, there's only so much that, the, the originator can give. And then it's the people that are in that group. That's 100%. right. That's like the, I call it the bonus round. Like that you, this is just, and really it's not the bonus round. That's what like some people will say, like Michael Blanc from the apartment investor, uh, a guy that I follow, he, he would say, Oh, everybody here. That's the bonus. It's like, no, this is the most important. In my opinion, yeah. I want to, I want to talk about is the mastermind. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about just a second ago was like being the, the smaller guy in the room in regards to whatever that is in, in our heads of success that we're, that we're in these rooms. Do you feel like because you've done a, like, let's say you've been in like the residential room, right? Where these people have done great deals and built up a portfolio. And then you've gotten to that next level where it's like, okay, I, these people have now become my peers. So what I'm getting at is like, it's become kind of a habit, right? Where it's like, I've been around these people who have been doing bigger things. Then I start doing those things and now they're my peers and now I'm surpassing them. Do you think that like doing those things and be, like having that kind of muscle of working that muscle in your mind going, I know this person is doing more than me. I'm around this person. Now I'm doing what this person is doing. Now we're peers, but now it looks like I'm actually, I'm surpassing that person. That, do you think that's like a muscle people need to work on? Yeah, listen, th this, is th this is where I think um, uh, terms get a little muddied and, and uh, uh, it, things are taken out of context. The, the idea that competition is not a good thing is bullshit. Um, the idea that, you know, w when I find out, when I go to our quarterly meetings and I see what my peers uh, are doing, I'm like, shit, I am thinking way too small. Um, and, not only, but, and besides just the competition aspect of it, and I, when I say competition, I don't want that taken out of context. I am not competing against those guys, but I like to use that as motivation to say, am I getting too complacent at the level that I'm at with my business and, and, and what I'm expecting in terms of growth of my business for this year or this quarter? And sometimes you don't even realize it until you go into these, these, these groups and, and you see what your guy, your friends are doing, your colleagues are doing. This is a lonely business if you choose to be lonely. Mm. Um, and it's so important to be uh, involved with like-minded people because they're going to push you up. And the biggest part of the, those organizations is holding you accountable. Mm. Now, whether they're actually calling you or checking in or saying, hey, wait a minute, you said you're going to do this, you didn't do that. It doesn't matter. The reality is going in, knowing that you're about to uh, uh, you know, meet with these guys for a couple of days and whatever group it is, uh, that immediately holds you accountable. Like, shit, I can't go in there without at least saying that I made some offers on a property that I went under contract and I went through my due diligence to, to lock in a deal. It would be, it's almost embarrassing to be with yeah. overachievers and say, 
yeah, we, we actually, it was a slow quarter. We actually didn't make a single offer. Well, that's just being lazy. There's no reason for you not to make an offer. Those are free. Mm. Being part of that group is, is a constant reminder every single day that that uh, quarterly meeting is getting closer. And I better get, I, I, get, I better make sure I look back and see how much production I've had since the last time I saw those guys. Yeah, because it's, it's almost like going to the gym in a way where, listen, the results are there. Like you can't hide like how you look. And you really can't hide your balance sheet. Like if you really want to like really dive into it, it it's, um, it's, it's open for people to see. Like people are going to know. They're, they're going to see. I mean, you can make stuff up, I guess, but that's, no one's doing that. When you're, when you're really that like dialed in and you're joining these types of groups, you're, you're, you're really like letting it all hang out. And I, I really think it's important yeah. that people do that, which kind of like brings my thought when you, you, we were talking off camera before we started going live was like the, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, asking for like asking for help, like being okay with looking like a, I guess like a fool, right. In order to become an expert, everyone has to look like a fool. You have to be, you you gotta be vulnerable. If you're not vulnerable, uh, showing, you know, your vulnerability, number one, people are, people don't want to be around a know-it-all. People want to know that you are open to say, Hey, listen, you've done a little bit more than me. I would love to know how you got there. Um, I, you know, I, I get questions all the time. People call me. I was like, great. I want to be an open book for anybody that is willing to spend the time. Um, now it's a matter of how you ask. If you say, hey, I want to pick your brain, uh, let me give you a call or leave a voicemail like that. I usually don't call those people back. If you email and say, hey, here are my outline of my questions, I will give you a whole book mm. that I know because I want to see you succeed, but you need to work at it. You can, I don't want to, you know, everybody's time is, is uh, very precious and, and I hold mine very sacred. Uh, so it's important that, you know, people aren't just saying, Hey, give me a call. I want to pick your brain. Well, I'm, I'm not calling you back. That. Right. That's insane. I mean, that's really good advice though, for people who maybe don't know how to approach a potential, you know, mentor or whatever that it is for you. If they're going to, you gotta, you gotta be able to know how to like really communicate what it yeah. is that you're trying to accomplish to that person. So they can help you because what they're doing actually probably Jared is giving you a problem. It's like, I don't want to, I don't need another problem. <laughs> you got to tell me what, where you yeah, don't are. Don't put your I mean, monkey on my back, but yeah. you know, listen, show your vulnerability, but show your hustle too. And part of the hustle is to actually have a thought out way to, to, uh, uh, to communicate so I can properly help you by just calling me and leaving me a voicemail like that. That doesn't help either one of us. I'm not prepared for the call. I, you might be asking me a question. Now we got to figure out other days for us to schedule so I can answer that question. But if I get it preliminarily, um, I, I'm much more well, well equipped and, and I, and I can, I could do all the homework prior to us actually getting on a call. So it is, it's vulnerability, but showing that you actually can commit to, you know, uh, to properly, you know, to get your answers. Yeah, no doubt. And I, and I want to stay here for a second because we, you know, be looking like a fool and, and, and being okay with asking for help and how do you ask for help? Those, these are all important, but I really think that even having that hustle that we talked about, there's something with like urgency, right? Where you are urgently going to be able to put yourself out there. I feel like the people who are willing to look like a fool also have a ton of urgency because they don't care how they look. They don't care what it looks like. They, they're, they're okay with opening themselves up. And so, cause it's like, you have to have that little bit of urgency. It's like, I got to get this done. And it, you know, here's the who it doesn't necessarily mean the how, but here's somebody who's done it. So, you know, what are your thoughts on like urgency and why that's, why did, why do you have it? Why do I, why do I have it? Like, what is it that, 
makes good business people typically have a lot of urgency. I know there's a lot of questions there, but mostly like, what are your thoughts on urgency? And is it, is it no surprise that a lot of successful investors or business people also have a lot of urgency? Yeah, I think everybody recognize if you're in the business world and you're, you're seasoned enough to understand that you're trading your time for money. Um, it, it, you know, it, it is every, every minute that you have is, is, you know, what's worth doing is worth doing for money. Mm. Um, and I have goals that, that only will get uh, achieved with a certain level of financial wealth. Uh, I have a sense of urgency to be able to create that wealth, to do, make the changes and do the things and give the money that I want, what I want to give and who I want to give it to before I'm dead. Mm. And, you know, a couple brushes with death in my life have created a sense of urgency for me to hit my goals. Uh, you know, not just my long-term goals, but my quarterly, my annual, and and I'm I'm very very attuned to whether I hit them or not on a quarterly basis. So yeah, I I have that urgency, but for maybe other reasons. I mean, I I could have been dead several times in the last five years. It's just crazy that you know everything is it worked out, and you know I'm I'm obviously here for a reason. He doesn't want me yet, so I got more work to do here. No uh, doubt. And and I. The people that I surround myself with, I can't speak for every business owner or, or entrepreneur, but the people that I surround myself with, they feel the same sense of urgency um, because it, life is short, man. Mm. It, it, it is really short, uh, wh- whether you're 20 or 40 or 60. And the older you get, the more you recognize that um, you're just blessed to still be here. I'm so, so agreeing with that. I And I love that. And I thank you for being open and honest. And, and guys, for those who don't know, I didn't even introduce him because, you know, hey, guys, it's my show. I bring people on that I want to talk to, and I'll ask them the questions I want to. Got it? Uh, No, but seriously, Jared Elmar, thank you so much for coming on. Guys, Jared Elmar is uh, the managing partner of the Geneva Group. It's a South Florida-based real estate investment firm uh, with over $2 million in uh, square feet of retail, industrial, residential, just all-around commercial real estate investor. And uh, I'm just so happy he's here. And uh, it, it's somebody that I look up to as a mentor of mine. But um, I do have some questions for him because I, I do want to, you know, obviously get to some meat here. But uh, Jared, first of all, thanks for being here. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me, Marty. All right, brother. And uh, some questions for you. You know, what, what's, your, what's your business now, right? So, you know, maybe, maybe actually, let's not go there yet. Take me back. You know, what was the beginning of entrepreneurship for you? And, uh, and, and maybe it was, was your childhood or the way you were raised, did that have any impact on that journey? Yeah. I, look, so I guess a quick synopsis of, of my background is um, uh, my father, he died when I was seven, drugs. My mom battled addictions and she wasn't really equipped to raise me. My grandfather wound up raising me on $1,500 a month in an efficiency apartment. Um, Money was always very obvious to me because we didn't have any. Um, my grandfather was was uh, astute enough, even though he had no money, to at least say, "Look, I can't provide you much, but at least I can provide you uh, at least um, to make you aware of what you're capable of." Um, and at nine years old, he threw a Forbes magazine in my hand and, and popular. It was Forbes, Kiplinger, and uh, and I was watching Wall Street Week in the eighties with Louis Kaiser. <laughs> Uh, on a black and white TV in our in our efficiency apartment, Underground. and it wasn't for me to understand markets and how they move. It was to show me numbers to say, you know, you read Forbes in the '80s, guys were making fifty million dollars a year, and that you know those were big, big numbers. 
And that's what he wanted me to see. Mm. So in a sense, he kind of created a monster because he wasn't a family man. I didn't have a lot of structure growing up. So I didn't really know how to be a family man. I learned later in my life. But one thing I, I did understand is entrepreneurship and that if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And my first uh, stint with entrepreneurship was um, in probably in third grade where I was selling. Um, my mother worked at a uh, outdoor flea market selling costume jewelry. Um, and it was cheap shit. I mean, it was like $7 bracelets, that kind of thing. It was yeah. crap. You turn your wrist green in the, in the, in the day. Uh, God forbid you bring it in the shower. And, and she fit, she stopped doing that. And I was just rummaging through something. And I found a shoebox of all this kinked up jewelry that was just leftovers. And I spent a couple of days unkinking all these pieces. And I wound up selling it in, in third grade in the bathroom of my elementary school and in my aftercare, uh, whatever aftercare I had. Uh, selling it to the parents. <laughs> so I was making like 40 bucks a day at, at, in third grade. And, and that was like, wow, this is, uh, this is amazing. And, and, I, and, and amazing. I felt like, I think that that moment, I was like, there's no way I can ever work for somebody. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, you had that thought in third grade. That's insane. I, I, I remember saying, well, why would you do anything else but this? Um, <laughs> True. So, so uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the principal of the school shut me down. Within <laughs> a half. Uh, so, so then it, it became, you got evicted uh, out of the bathroom. Then it became a uh, black market jewelry and yeah. do it uh, more on the down low. Sure. Um, but uh, that was really my first, my first experience with entrepreneurship. That was my quote unquote lemonade stand. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. That needs to be in the book, which by the way, Jared, it does have a book coming out. And uh, I really look forward to talking about that. Actually, while we're on it, can you talk a little bit about the book? Uh, yeah, I think we're narrowing it down. Title's going to be uh, built from nothing. Wow. And, uh, it. it really will, you know, first few chapters is really my upbringing. It's, uh, these days it makes for good conversation and it's a good story to tell. I wear a lot of the challenges that I grew up with, like a badge of honor and things that are, I was, I was ashamed to even admit even a few years ago, but at this point I feel like it, 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 it validates the idea that it doesn't matter where you came from. It matters where you are and where you're going. Um, everything else is just for conversation and, and the, the win uh, or the success that I have now um, needs to just be gratifying and satisfying for me. Because, um, mm. you know, I don't want anybody to say, wow, you came from that and now you're here. It, that's for me. Mm. But I recognize that that is motivation and that's, that's an ability for people to say, all right, I can't use what I'm going through as a crutch because this guy didn't. Mm. And that's part of what the few, few chapters of my book is about is that, you know, you got to use your negatives or positives in life as one thing. And that's fuel, fuel to progress. Cause for, for me, progress equals happiness is something that Tony Robbins always talked mm. about. And, and it's so true when I'm progressing throughout the day, whether it's in the gym, whether it's uh, at the office, whether it's leading the team and, 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 and raising them up to be leaders, that is progress. And that makes me happy to wake up every single day. And it's the reason why Monday is my favorite day of the week, because it's, it's something I could do something now that I didn't get to accomplish the week prior. Mm. Uh, and that's the, the first few chapters. Then I go on more toward uh, real estate war stories. Um, I recognize that strategies get a little boring. People's eyes glaze over when you start talking about technical real estate strategies. The war stories are what people can absorb. And, and, and I got plenty of them. <laughs> yeah. And they're unbelievable. They're re they really are. And uh, why don't we just go into that? You know, why don't we talk about a little bit of the some of the the, the horror stories that you have, I, I know there was one, but could you just elaborate a little bit on, on what's going to be in the book about some, uh, maybe some tough decisions, some bad decisions you made when you, when you bought some properties? 
Well, and, and Marty, just like you, because I think you're hitting that uh, crossroads where you're looking to evolve beyond just residential. Um, you got a good foothold there, and now you're looking to enter the commercial space. We all did that. That is kind of the natural evolution of a real estate investor. Uh, and when you build some scale, you convert, you you graduate from investor to business. Um, but in the beginning, it's going from resi to commercial. And when I I was buying houses on the courthouse steps, uh, I was scattered throughout good market, good areas, of good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, and my and you know I had houses broken into and whatever. Those those are kind of boring stories. But then when I graduated into a, a multifamily, I bought a, my first commercial deal was a 156 unit apartment complex. Um, that deal within 30 days of ownership, we had a murder. It was a drug deal gone bad. Uh, it is the, it was a, a 19 year old that got shot up right in the common area of the apartment. Um, and uh, it, it's crazy. I mean, we were in a major metro area of Atlanta and um, there wasn't, I figured the news was going to be out there. We were going to get sued. None of that happened. It was kind of one of those things where you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And when I talked to our property managers that were on site, they said, yeah, we spoke to the parents and they almost seemed like they expected this to happen. So, um, and unfortunately there are certain neighborhoods that, you know, you're almost to a certain degree, you're trapped. And I'm hoping that my book will at least get out to some of those neighborhoods. Mm. I come from those neighborhoods Mm. Um, and, you know, whether I'm an anomaly or, uh, you know, something more, uh, I, I, I think everybody is capable as long as they get that guidance, whether that's from a book, a mentor, a family member, a neighborhood. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully my book will get through to people that don't have those mentors in their neighborhoods. It really will. I know it will. I mean, the, the, just the story and your story needs to be out there. That's really the thing is like, I'm, I want more of this. Like you need to be out here. You need to get this out there. And I, I whatever media it is, more people need to hear your story because I think, how powerful it is that what you came from literally, like you said, in the, like the title it's built from nothing or, you know, even less than nothing in some, in some cases, you know, less than nothing was actually the title, but it was too many words. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Good, good fair job. enough. Um, so let's, so that was a tough decision, bad decision, buying that property. And, it, you know, let's just talk about C and D type properties or C properties for a second, because I think that for me, this is again, my show, uh, there's a lot of them in in Rochester and upstate New York. There's a lot of like C type multifamily and um, you know, the numbers look good, right? Those numbers look great. You you can sell that. Uh, But is your opinion on those types of properties that, because I had a revelation and I wanted to hear your opinion to see if you think this is true. No one should be buying those. The only people that should be buying those are government entities or non-for-profits or people who just don't care about the return at all and just have, they're independently wealthy and they just want to see the neighborhood change. Because I think what happens, Jared, is a lot of investors, and I get pissed about this. I think a lot of investors buy these types of properties, realize what they got into, realize that it's nothing that you did wrong necessarily other than buy it. You're not a bad owner. It's a bad asset to buy. And yeah. so a lot of people get into that for the first time because it's the numbers are, you know, the, the, big, the returns are bigger and the prices are lower. Sure. And then they think that they're a bad investor. And so I, I really, I really get, uh, I get amped up about it because I was one of those guys and yeah. I, I stuck with it, but I just see so many people who didn't continue on. And my whole thought was no one should be buying these 
you know, there are years of redlining and just the, the, you know, years of racism and years of all these things that you are not able to counteract. So listen, Marty, you're a hundred percent right. Listen, I, uh, if I had to go back, I would never ever. And I won't now. And I wouldn't back then if I had to start all over, get into a class C property. Um, and I want to make sure that there's a, a, an understanding of what I'm talking about, a class C, you know, multifamily was a great asset class to be involved in and shame on me for not staying hundred percent focused on multifamily over the last 11 years. Industrial has served us very well, but I was ground zero buying apartments. The problem was I bought a class C really class D if there's such a thing, uh, apartment complex. And you're hundred percent right on paper, on paper, the numbers are very compelling. And you're buying at these price. Everybody gets enamored with the price per door. At the time that I bought my apartment complex, I was buying it for ninety seven hundred dollars a door. Insane. So that that's insane. Like you close your eyes, you hope for the best at not at less than ten thousand a unit. Um, but still, still, I had so many issues and so much deferred maintenance. These properties get beat up beyond what any other product type or asset class get beat up. Anytime you renovate these properties in these specific mar- in those specific markets, class C and less. Um, you're going to do the same renovations 12 months later, 100%, no question about it. You're going to be dealing with delinquencies that you're never going to be able to cure. You're going to have more turnover and, and the cost of turning over, and unless you're really dialed into your numbers, you're not even going to know you're not making any money. Uh, I, I would steer clear of Class C and above. Now, I'm not saying that people don't get lucky. And, and quite frankly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had residential experience, but I didn't, I didn't know how to run a 156-unit apartment complex, but I bought it in 2010. I was on the basement floor, and the market only went in one direction since 2010. Right. So even though I had a murder, even though I had to renovate, re-renovate virtually the entire complex before I sold it 16 months after I bought it, um, even though I had a strong-arm robbery, two fires, uh, a truck going through a building, all within those 16 months, we still turn an amazing profit not because I'm so good, but because I caught the right market. Mm. No, I made the mistake of getting in the wrong product type. Mm. At this point in the cycle, people are still getting enamored with the price per door saying, wow, I could buy this 150 unit or 80 unit or 200 unit apartment complex in the hood of Arkansas or wherever it is. Uh, and you know the numbers are screaming off the page. Yeah, but you're never going to be able to achieve those numbers. And at this point in the cycle, you don't have the momentum and that trajectory to look forward to. So there's so many other product types to, to focus on. Buy, buy less units, but a better product type in a better market is my opinion. Uh, yeah, thank you for saying that. Because I, 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 first of all, it's good to hear it from somebody who is uh, up a, a number of levels and in, in just confirming that thought I had. Um, one of the things that you talked about is, you know, going from a investor to a business, that's where we are, right? And that's where a lot of my listeners are. They're, they're investors and they want to transition to being a business. And we, all, we may say that we are, but really we know that we're not. So what is the mindset shift that people need to have? Or was there an aha moment for you? What maybe, again, this is a, it's really just the work, putting the work in, but what is your thought on how that transition occurs and, and what maybe be the next best step for somebody? Man, I can only speak from experience and uh, what, as me, be, when I was what I consider a real estate investor, it is a natural, uh, you have to hit that step. You have to be at that stone before you can jump to the next one. That allowed me to stockpile my own cash. That, as being an investor, allowed me to build my own liquidity and it allowed me to have proof of concept 
with my investor base. Now, everybody might be getting their capital from different places, but for me, it was dialing for dollars on every mm. project. I still do that today. Um, it's like no. selling, selling these days, but in the beginning, I had to sell the deal five, seven, 10, 12 times. Now I got 40 investors. I only have to sell it five times with new investors that are coming in. So you build a Rolodex and, you, and it really does compound faster than you think. But you have to go through that investor, quote unquote, stage prior to becoming the business. You mm. got to get the cash behind you. You have to have uh, you have to have a good track record, a good resume to, to work off of, and you got to have proof of concept to your investor base. Then once you establish that, then you have to decide what you're going to hold and what you're going to sell. And for us, we try to hold now in perpetuity. We, we were trying not to say, all right, we're, we're going to buy, we're going to fix up, we're going to flip. We'll still do that. It's still part of the model, but we're really trying to hold and build more square footage, more square footage, to, to ultimately have a business. The framework with which my business works off of is I'm always going to be the visionary. I'm a high level thinker. Uh, partly my ADD has, has been a benefit in business for me where it wasn't in school. Uh, <laughs> I, I think shit up. That is my job. Every single day is being the visionary. My, my partner, Aaron, Aaron runs operations. Aaron is what's considered the number two in the office, right? He is the one who makes my vision happen. He's the guy who makes the shit happen, right? That's his job. Everybody else underneath that number two makes it repeatable. And that is the framework that we work off of. And one doesn't work without the other. Mm. Um, so that, that I know I'm, 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 I'm making, I'm creating, I'm putting this in, in its most simplistic version. It's huge. Uh, but, but that is it. I'm the high level thinker. My number two makes it happen. And everybody else makes it repeatable. And that, that has created the business uh, model uh, and with with uh, with real estate, we're it, we're essentially creating businesses every single time we buy a property. It's in a partnership. It creates its own, it's its own life life uh, you know organism. It um, you know it creates cash flow. It has its own expenses. We're down here as the branding company, as the Geneva Group that collects management fees to keep all the plates spinning, all the partnerships going being able to distribute to all our investors. And, and that business, that core business, which is Geneva, um, is, is, is where, where the brains come from. And that's mm. what forces the value in all the other partnerships. That We force appreciation into our partnerships in a short period of time. And that's what we've been kind of known for. Because the team, we're, it's a very cohesive, collaborative, we, we collaborate all the time. Um, the, the PMs are always talking to our asset managers. Our asset managers are always talking to operations, acquisitions, and me. We're, we're dialed in, and I speak to our acquisitions team more than anybody in the office. And we try to stay somewhat compartmentalized on our tasks at hand, but we're all nonstop commu communicating nonstop. So, you know, that, that's, I guess, the 30,000 foot view of, of the, the evolution of going from an investor to a business. Um, and everybody's get in, invested in different product types. and there's different nuances, but that's the framework to work off of in any industry, in my opinion. No, I love that. And uh, that's a great formula, actually. And I never heard that. So it's, it's super helpful. And I'm sure everyone listening is going to be, you should probably pause and re-listen to that a few different times, because then you'll know in your life and in your business circumstance where you could plug in those types of people, because maybe you're missing one or maybe you are the number two. So maybe you need to find somebody who is thinking uh, maybe as the visionary. You know, what I really like when, I, when I've heard more about your podcast, when I were when you're on podcasts, when you're on shows and I'm, I'm hearing your story is that, you know, and you just, what you were saying, just 
was a light bulb in my head is like, we're almost serial entrepreneurs, right? In a way where when you're buying a different asset class, whether it's industrial or whatever it is, that type of business, it has its own business plan every single time. So you really are a serial entrepreneur in a way, because you're starting another business uh, sure. with that. Yeah, Do you, right. Why is it then, you know, because you're, your small bay thesis is so powerful listening to it and understanding it. And now I'm amped up about it. You know, why do you believe in it so much? You know, I'm not the guy who is an honors uh, calculus. And when I'm looking at the real estate, what I loved about real estate is it's really as basic math as it gets, right? Adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, boom, you have your values. There's nothing more to it. Um, and with, with that particular product type, um, with Marty was mentioning a small bay industrial, that's an asset class that has not been developed in scale uh, to scale, you know, in scale uh, since 2006. Every other product type you can think of: self storage, any alternative investment, multifamily, um, you know, office in some major markets, uh, retail, um, you know, all that has been developed throughout the country over the last since 2006. The one thing that hasn't is small bay. Now that's partly because industrial land costs have gone up dramatically. Uh, and these are all single story and it, they tend to be sprawling complexes. So it's very expensive to buy the land. And then you're specking out individual units. So if I buy a 200,000 foot, uh, uh, a small bay industrial complex, I might have 70 units, 70 or 80 units. They're all 1500 foot, 2000, 3000 foot units. I have to spec all those out because the think about the tradesman, the type of tenant that goes into that type of property, um, they need to move in in 30 days. The AC contractor, the landscaper, the millwork guy, the granite guy, those guys don't have nine months for you to build out and spec the space out, which means you have to go in and speculate on all that square footage. And it's a ton of money to build. It's a lot of brain damage. And then to top it all off, you have no real credit tenants, mm. but you also don't have the concentration risk. So for me, I don't care if I don't have credit tenants. I know that those spots, those sizes in certain markets, tradesmen, I got five tradesmen for every one unit that becomes available. And that's why I love I love the demand of it because it really is it's a, it's it's supply and demand one hundred and one. It hasn't been developed since oh six. Um, I have no concentration risk. It, it's not going to be built. I mean, at some point it'll there'll be some speculation, but not in in large scale. Because think about it, the other industrial product types uh, like large logistics, you know, distribution facilities, something like an Amazon or you know a Clorox distribution facility, something like that. Um, you could build a shell, just a, a, a hollow shell. Then all of a sudden, Amazon says, hey, I need a half a million square feet. Okay, great. Let's negotiate a lease. Boom, you get the lease. Then you, they have nine months to 12 months to allow you to build it out. Then you go to your bank and say, hey, I got an Amazon lease. Finance the whole damn thing for me. Mm. It is a lot less brain damage for a, an industrial developer to do that versus small bay because it's all non-credit. percent. Get the financing. So for all those reasons, I can solve for all that. And that's why I love that product type. Now, whether it's right or wrong, it has certainly served us well in the last 10 years. Um, and even if we have a slowdown in the economy, okay, so we don't have five, five tradesmen that's interested in, uh, in every one unit, but you know, we still have one or two. Uh, and you know, the rents are at crazy high numbers, but we're underwriting deals uh, with a lot of cushion. We know that if rents come down, we're still going to be okay. And we always measure our occupancy impact 
to see, okay, we can get down to 72% occupancy. We can get down to 15% rent reduction and we can still cover debt service. So we, we do those uh, uh, sensitivity analysis mm. when we model our deals. We look at the catastrophic plan as much as we look at the best case scenario. Yeah. And that's why I think uh, your investors and people love working with you because of how conservative you are when you do model things out. And, and also that what I, what resonated for me, and I think this is for, again, a lot of my, the people listening are, you know, flippers and uh, is that we know these guys, we know these contractors, we, we know that they, they need a place and they're good. They're good folks. And, you know, you got the mold remediation guy, the HVAC guy, the, the cabinet guy, they all need a spot and they, no one cares more than those guys about making sure they have a place for their business. Like no one cares more. So it's a way different than like a residential or, uh, you know, just, it just makes a ton of sense for a flipper to understand that asset class. So that's, that's what sold me on it. Um, you talked about leases a little bit. What's your mindset when you approach a lease? Like I know you, you said it was kind of like playing a game of chess. How, when you look at something like that, what is your mindset when you approach like a renewal or a new lease is there for somebody who has no clue about dealing with that type of thing, what should they be doing? I know it's probably it's an own episode, but just maybe some quick high level thoughts on, on leases. Um, I mean, obviously it depends. If it, you know, I, I try not to get involved in the smaller leases because my office is well equipped to, to deal with the smaller stuff, but the bigger game changing leases that we do have in some of our properties, uh, I get involved a hundred percent. And that's partly be- and, and not because, and, and the guys that are really spearheading in my office, like our asset manager that's spearheading a lot of the leasing on the, on the larger major tenants, um, he's dealing with the, looking at the calculations, looking at our, comparing it to our projections, making sure we're in line with what we've modeled out when we bought the property in the first place. But what I get involved in is I'm like, okay, uh, like just yesterday, we have a major lease that we're negotiating right now on 25,000 feet. It's a game changer. We ink that lease. It adds about two and a half million dollars in value to the property. Let's go. Right. So I'm looking at that and I'm like, okay, the fact that they got back to you within three hours, we, we sent the letter of intent. They countered us within three hours. They also uh, divulged to us that they have to be in by April. Okay. Now they have, and, and we were looking at how much tenant improvement dollars they need, which means they got to reconfigure the space based on what they're asking for us. Okay. So Let's, let's, let's weigh this out as far as the intangibles go. They got back to us within three hours. They have no choice but to be in by April. And I see what their build out or the projections are on, on how much construction that they're about to put into our, our, our you know, invest into our space. Uh, I know that we can be a little bit more aggressive, right? I know they have to be in. And I know after five tours that they had, it's very easy to say, okay, they're not going anywhere else. In their mm-hmm. mind, they've already leased this space. So maybe we could be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, with this particular lease. On the flip side, on the flip side, I had another deal, which happened last year. Again, huge game changer. That lease added about $7 million in value to the property. It was uh, a very large car, uh, flooring company, uh, trades on the stock exchange. They were uh, do or die for not only the building, but the actual three-pack portfolio that we were going to take out the market. They wanted to expand into new space. And we thought we had it done. We thought we had it done. We weren't giving a lot of TI with a couple dollars more a foot in rent. They were going to sign for five years. It was going to be a great deal. We needed them. If we lost them, we would have lost millions of dollars in value. So it, there was, failure was not an option on this one. We yes. To lock them in. And we thought we did. All of a sudden, we get a call that says, uh, we are we, basically, we don't need to do a 180 on you, but we have another uh, property that we're looking at. 
looks like we we're going to be able to make a deal on that one. And, um, you know, it's still not decided, but they're really, you know, upper management is weighing all this out. So at that point, well, I'm not going to sit on my hands, right? I'm not relying on the broker and us to wait and see what happens when we know that is the, that is the self-destruct button if they left. We would lose millions and our investors, you know, would be pissed off, right? Uh, so we threw what we called the Hail Mary out. And we said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Call the broker. Mr. Broker, I know you have to do what's right with uh, your client. Um, and I want to make sure it's a level playing field. You're getting 6% commission by sending them over to the other property, uh, sending them over to the other property. You're only getting four on the renewal. I'm going to give you six. He's like, no, 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 that's not necessary. I'm like, yep, yep. It's going to make me sleep at night. You're getting 6%. I'm not asking you to do anything that's not, that's, that's uh, uh, unethical, but I want to be on that level playing field. So you're getting six. In addition to that, I want to send a new proposal to the tenant uh, so he can make a decision. And when he sees what we're willing to truly do for him and how bad we will, how much we want him here, I think he's going to have no choice but to come right back. He's like, you don't have to do that. I'm telling you. And, and maybe we did, maybe in spite of, or because of, we don't know why they stayed, but we threw the hell Mary instead of 150,000 in tenant improvement dollars, we gave him 700,000. Uh, instead of, um, you know, we, we, we lowered the rent. We gave him a year free rent, but the only thing we asked in exchange for pulling our pants down is a uh, 10 year lease instead of a five year lease. Well, looking at the economics on the deal, it made all the sense in the world for us to offer 700,000 versus 150,000 in TI. That, that big difference still made all the sense in the world. P.S. They wound up staying and it was one of the best deals we ever made. We, I think we did 10 million in profit in 30 months on that deal. Unbelievable. And because it, you're willing to do, you, ha- you were willing to do anything to get the job done, for but sure. enough where it still made sense for everybody. And it was a $10 million win. When it, when it comes to leasing, the brokers, they're, they're your lifeblood. You have to have the brokers, uh, but you can't you can't just end with the brokers to do their job. This is your investment, your mm. your you, your money and other people's money are at stake, and you can't leave it to a third party. Um, it's that's moral hazard. So for for me and, and anybody who obviously is listening, um, don't stop there and let the brokers know I'm going to help you do your job. You're still going to get paid, but I'm going to work with you. If you want a passive investment and that's not your style, that's okay. Um, just be be careful on the asset classes that you you choose to invest in because a lot of times it does take a lot of outside the box thinking and uh and you know pivoting or moving very quick and being nimble like we did on both of those situations i love it because both of them are are problem solving at the highest level and uh and actually before i get to the speed round i wanted to talk to you about problem solving you know as i've grown up in this business i've, I've realized that and this is just me is that that's a part of the job buddy you better get used to it. And it's actually, you know, it's a privilege to solve those problems, right? You know, pressure is a privilege to have. And then at the same time, you know, problems are just something that are, it's just going to be there forever. So, so don't like my thing would be at times, maybe how do I not have to do that? I don't like that problem. That problems, I just, you know, being uncomfortable with problems. Did you always have a mindset? It's like, let's get that problem solved right away. Um, what are your thoughts on solving problems as a business owner and how they how they come up? I mean, am I crazy is, am I, for like still not really enjoying that, or is that like no? That's 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 my job as CEO. Like I solve problems. Like I, I know how everybody talks about. You know, I solve problems for a living. It's like yeah, but I don't. Sometimes I don't fucking want to do that. Like I don't like doing it at all. Um, you know, so I'm like, why can't you just 
do it the way we talked about in the beginning and there wouldn't have been a problem. But anyway, what are your thoughts on problem solving? Um, but, I mean, I, I do classify myself as the growth component of the company and the problem solver. When there is a problem to be solved, um, I want to be involved. And that's, that's, that's uh, again, the, the buck stops with you. It doesn't stop with the person that uh, in your team that took on the responsibility of doing whatever they're doing. Yep. The buck stops with you. My investors don't give a shit that my, my, my property manager didn't make a call fast enough or, or fix a repair quick enough. The buck stops with me. So I, I recognize and acknowledge that I am the problem solver as the leader of the cut. Look, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I'm okay being, you know, get, you know, uh, getting shoveled to shit when it happens. Yep. Now, creating sy- certain systems, uh, having the right asses in the right seats, um, and 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 constantly educating yourself because just business as a, you know, business as as a whole as an art evolves and changes all the time. So I'm constantly educating myself on how to handle and how to be a better leader. Um, and create the better systems and systems and procedures so those problems don't continue to happen. But unfortunately, in the beginning, and a lot of people I'm sure that are listening right now, they're not at that stage where they're you know a CEO of a 500 you know person company. You got to be you got to take the shit for in the beginning. But you got the the faster you educate yourself and the more you get involved in and 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 find people that are better than you at what you do, uh, the less shit you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, that's great. And I think just recognizing that that's a part of the job and understanding and accepting it, just accepting it was a big changer for me and just allowing myself to go, this is what you wanted. And it in is. In the beginning, yes. In the beginning, yes. And, and every once in a while, you're still going to have it, but it's going to be fewer and further between the better and more refined you get as a leader. Yeah, that's okay. Good to hear. All right. So this is a really good question. Uh, the guys, this is a new thing that we're doing. It's a speed round. And uh Anyway, we'll see how it goes, but I'm assuming it's going to go great. If there was, uh, Jared, one metric you could track in your business, what would you choose or what is that metric that you're looking at on a daily or weekly, monthly basis? Uh, so um, I'm probably getting a little too granular on the question, but you know, operating cash flow. I'm always focused on operating cash flow, not to be confused with investing in finance cash flow. Um, you know, we take on a lot of debt as real estate guys. Okay. That's invest. That's uh, a finance cash flow. We take on a lot of equity from investors. That's investment cash flow. If you're not really minding, uh, what the difference between those three, you don't really know if you're making money as a business. And that is happening with most small businesses out there. Most business owners don't recognize that they're not making any money because they continue to take on debt. They continue to take on partners and they continue to mess around with their accounts receivable and their accounts payable. And they don't even recognize that if the music ever stopped, they're really not making any money. So that operating cash flow is what you want to focus on. And that comes from your cash flow statement. And that's, that is my, uh, that is probably my most important um, uh, financial re- uh, report that I look at. Okay. I love it. And so you look at that daily. Uh, no, we, we, I'll, I'll track it monthly. Got it. Okay. Tracks it monthly. Okay. I like it. Um, what book do you recommend real estate investors to read or business owners that uh, you think were really, really helpful in your, you know, maybe beginning career or where you are now, yeah. or maybe even what's the latest book that you read that you thought was like, wow, this is really freaking good. There, there's so many. I mean, I, I, I stay, I'm, you know, as they say, leaders are readers. Um, I, I really believe in that. I would say there's a bit, there's a book called strategy for real estate companies. And this is probably a good dovetail to, uh, to what, you, you know, we talked about from going from investor to business, uh, urban land Institute came out with this book called strategy for real estate investing. 
uh, from Kaufman. Uh, and it really talks about how to create the business around investing in real estate. And, and it, it's been a tremendous help. And I've implemented so much of what I learned from that book. That's huge. Love it. Haven't even heard of that. So you know that it's freaking good. Thank you for that. Uh, how much do you, if you don't want to disclose it, that's okay. But um, how much do you spend on personal development? Or I mean, let's say like, what do you think uh, about the, like, you know, spending money on your personal development uh, in general? I think it's an absolute must. Now I, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't go to college. Uh, so this is my college, uh, the personal development, the money I spend, I'll spend, uh, you know, uh, Harvard education on it. If it's the right course, I am probably very consistent at about 70 to $80,000 a year in personal development, whether that's uh, organizations that I belong to, uh, mastermind groups, um, courses that I've taken. Um, I just got back from Austin for an MBA course. Uh, that was 10,000. Um, I'm always happy. Not only that, we consist, we continue, everybody in the office goes to continuing education courses. And they know wow. like, property managers going to property management courses. My accounting are going to finance courses. Uh, my operations is going to leadership courses. We continue to make sure that that's a big part of it. And I'm no different. Love that. That's insane. No wonder the company is crushing it. Um, if you lost it all today, what would you do? Today, meaning right now, August 7, 2022, where the market is right now. So what I would do today is uh, I would 100% have, if I had nothing and lost my Rolodex, uh, I would be a broker. I would get my license, uh, commercial broker. Um, I would dial for buyers and sellers uh, until the market turned where there was opportunity. And then I would be dialing for myself with just buyers, uh, sellers. Uh, that would be my, you know, that's, that's how I would structure it. But as a broker, you learn the market. You learn, you know, the, the strategies and techniques of uh, buyer and seller. You make some money in the process. And then when there's an opportunity, when the market presents itself uh, to be to just do nothing but call sellers. I love it. I love it. I've, I've actually heard you say that when we were at the, uh, the podcast with Jeremiah and Dimitri. Yeah. And I thought that was that was brilliant. I loved it. Um, thank you. Jer well, actually, last question. Why is it called the Geneva Group? Ah, I love that. I, it's rare I get asked that. So I'm very excited when people ask that. It's only a few people. So I, I told you my grandfather had me reading Forbes in the 80s uh, and I was a kid. So my favorite movie of all time has been Wall Street, the first Wall Street with Michael Douglas, uh, Charlie Sheen. And there is a small little scene in the movie where Michael Douglas is in his backyard and he's with Charlie Sheen and he's telling them to trade uh, in his offshore accounts. And the offshore account was called Geneva Roth Holding Corp. And I just thought that was the coolest name. It's global. It's real <laughs> I love it. it's privacy back when, I guess, when uh, Switzerland had a disdain for big government. Uh, that, I just thought that was the coolest name. And I said, you know what? I'm going to name my company that. And that's how the Geneva Group was, uh, was born. That's actually really cool because it goes full circle. Like that was something you saw as a kid and you were like, that's so sick. Like I want to do stuck. something like that. Right. And now- I mean, is it fair to say that this is way more than your wildest dreams where you are now? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. fucking great. Yeah, absolutely. That's it, fucking awesome. But the hard part, though, the hard part is to actually smell the roses, uh, pat yourself on the back and recognize where, where you are now. That's the biggest problem for me. There's something called, um, uh, I used to do Strategic Coach, which was an entrepreneurial group that taught you how to strategize, problem solve, build your business, 10x your business. And one of the things they talk about is the gain and the gap. And do you live in the gain or do you live in the gap? I tend to live in the gap. And, and that's something that I'm trying to continue to improve myself where 
uh, it's never, uh, uh, I, the, or the real and the surreal is another way to put it. I live in the surreal where I'm trying to find the horizon and I see it, but it doesn't really exist. It's not really. You just keep going out there, drifting out there, and the horizon just keeps moving. When you live in the real, you really appreciate where you came from. And part of my philanthropic endeavors allow me to appreciate where I am and what I could do for other people. And, and that, you know, serving other people in any way has proven to me uh, as, uh, as a way for me to really appreciate where I am today. Um, that's, uh, and it, it's, it, it's ever evolving. Um, but that, that's, that's very important to me now is to give back and to bring as many people as I can with me. You've talked about that a few times, you know, charity being uh, just so tremendously important to you, you know, your company, your family and showing your, you know, your kids. Because one of the things you said was that a tough thing is going to be, you know, giving them the sense of like, hey, you know, this isn't normal, what what we're doing, like what I've done and like what, how you live essentially isn't like the norm. Um is that what your thoughts are that like going out and, and volunteering and, and putting your money to unbelievable yeah. projects? Is that like a, something you, it's a, a must do for all, like for all business people to really, you know, maybe smell the roses. Yeah. And again, I, 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 if you don't do it, if you don't exercise that muscle, which I, you know, my friend of mine coined this phrase, uh, a philanthropy muscle. If you're not working the philanthropy muscle, um, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it atrophies and you don't re- and then you wonder why there's an emptiness in your life. Uh, when you're living in service and when you're helping people, uh, organizations or individuals, whether even family, um, the, I mean, you know how it feels when you actually help somebody out I mean, buy somebody a cup of coffee and watch the feeling that you get, forget them. It, it really is. That's just the way we're wired. It's deep rooted in our DNA as humanity. Um, and people just don't recognize that because we're so into us. We think we're so damn important on this planet. Um, and when you, when you actually step out and, and, and get out of your comfort zone, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a complete mind shift and, and you don't know that until you actually do it. So that's a big part for me. And also just staying humble, um, being involved in organizations, you are reminded how blessed you truly are when you're giving to charities, when you actually see what's going on with the individuals that you're impacting with money that you have. That, that truly keeps you humble, very humbling. Well, I just got goosebumps. I uh, thank you, Jared, for taking the time. You, you are, you, you're charitable with your time. I know you've done this a few times. It's unbelievable to hear the story. It's unbelievable that I get to be around people like you and uh, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, is there anywhere that people can maybe get a hold of like the potential of the book or maybe where is there like a website people can go to, to kind of find more information about you? Where, where can people go? Yeah. The website's Geneva GP.com. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. The funny thing is Jared Elmar. I'm the only one on the planet. So uh, if you Google my name, I'm pretty, uh, pretty easy to find. Um, but yes, look, I, I, Marty, I'm, I'm always here for you and, and our group. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just so happy you do this because all I really want to do these days is share. I mean, I want to continue to build a business, but I could do both. And I, and when I was younger, I didn't realize I could do both. It's insane. You're the man, Jared. Thank you so much for being on the show, brother. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, Marty. Thanks See you guys. Talk to you. Thank you for tuning into the Marty Grizzani Show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us an honest rating and review. If you're on Spotify, make sure you follow us for weekly episodes.